0: Twenty-five years ago when I was a a student um, I had the interesting experience of working part-time as a nurse for Stephen Hawking and over the couple of years that uh, I worked for him we actually got to know each other reasonably well. It was before he was thoroughly famous and in those days he could just about still speak himself so I didn't have to endure that sort of Hawking synthesised voice as we spoke and I, I, frankly, was fascinated by his work. One summer in particular, we went to uh, um, Germany together for five weeks and um, he patiently tried to, un- uh, to help me understand his theories. Uh, he actually gave me a manuscript to comment at that, on at that time, which he was writing to make his theories popular. It uh, came out subsequently as the book, A Brief History of Time. And so it was by a strange quirk of God's providence. I had the privilege of sitting with, discussing, um, and you won't be surprised to learn from someone like me, arguing with um, one of the uh, uh, people who's become one of the most famous theorists about the origin of the universe. Now, I don't pretend to have mastered Stephen Hawking's ideas, but um, I did spend a long time wondering about them. Do they matter? I don't mean do they matter in the world of physics. They certainly do. Do they matter for our understanding of God? Many Christians feel that they matter enormously. A good proportion of Bible-believing Christians, of course, feel that Genesis 1 and 2 describes God creating the world not that long ago, in six days, and so any understanding of the universe um, which presents it as are older than that is clearly contrary to scripture. And though I respect my fellow Christians who believe that, I have to say I'm not personally convinced. I'm far from convinced that the uh, uh, scientific evidence points to a young universe. The overwhelming majority of scientists, including evangelical Christians, scientists uh, agree with that, but I'm not actually convinced that Genesis 1 in particular does set out to describe how God created his universe at all. At least with the kind of hows that Stephen Hawking is talking about. I don't believe actually that Genesis chapter 1 is the kind of literature that sets out to describe in detail from a scientific perspective how God did his work. I think it's a different kind of literature altogether. And that, that is crucial for our, our understanding of Genesis chapter 1, I think. We need to understand what, the, what literary people call its genre, what kind of literature is. And the Bible is full of all kinds of genres of literature. There are um, short fictional tales told by Jesus, parables. There are large swathes of conventional history that are expected to be taken um, as as that. There are songs, there are letters, there are dreams. What kind of literature is Genesis uh, chapter 1? Well, the first thing I want to say, and something that you may find controversial, but let me explain it to you, is that it is not, it is definitely not history. To my mind, that's absolutely undeniable. The biblical authors have a very clear understanding of what history is. And they state it in a number of places. For instance, Luke, beginning his Gospel, says that... um, Just as the traditions were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses, so he sets out to record them. The point is that that history is the record of people who witnessed an event. That is what scripture says history is. And of course most at least of Genesis chapter 1 could not was 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 by definition without witnesses human beings appear on the scene far too late genesis one must then be a kind of literature used to describe what actually no one ever did see with their eyes it must be And there are kinds of literature in the Bible exactly for that. Prophecy would be um, uh, the most prominent of those. The prophets spoke of events that had not yet taken place. So I want to suggest to you perhaps um, uh, the best way of understanding Genesis chapter 1 is that it is a kind of reverse prophecy. When we read uh, uh, the the prophets, we see them using figurative language language when they're they're describing things that they're predicting. We see them them speaking of time periods which frankly are distinctly uncertain. We see actually the order of events is often not very clear in, uh, in Old Testament prophets. The truths that those prophets conveyed are no less concrete but they are not describing them as a conventional historian would do. They're not describing them in the same way that the historical books of the Bible describe them. And although Genesis 1 is certainly unique, it may fit more naturally into the category of prophecy than history, with all that that means. What are we to make then of the uh, six t- uh, days of creation? Well, you will know, I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any time certainly, that uh, there are a range of opinions. Let me just set out a few. Um, uh, the suggestion is often uh, uh, made in some circles that they represent four, uh, six 24-hour periods. Um, I want to say to you, I think we can still have a high view of scripture and not see them as that. The vast majority of scientists uh, from a range of disciplines, as I've already said, um, believe that the earth is quite old and was created over a long period. And that, that view actually goes back to long before Darwin came along whose anniversary we're celebrating at the moment. I respect the views of uh, other Christians who uh, hold to the idea that uh, God must have created the world in six 24-hour periods. But for myself, I I do find it unconvincing. Of course, that's not to say that scientists have tidied up all the loose ends about how the earth was created, not at all. But overwhelmingly for 200 years and more now, Christians have uh, believed that the earth is actually quite old. It seems to me that if God did create uh, the universe in six 24-hour periods, then he will, have, he will have created it with the appearance of age. God's quite capable of doing that. Um, when he created wine at the wedding of Cana. If you'd tasted it, you would have thought it was well-aged wine. It was the best. God's quite capable of doing miracles and of creating his universe with an appearance of age. But I, 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 I have become convinced from looking at this for many years that we will look in vain to try and find a clear demonstration within his creation, of how he created it in six days. Because of that, many people have suggested that these six days are three long eras in Genesis chapter 1 because the seventh day certainly is. If you look at chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, you'll see that the seventh day is not described as finishing all the other days there were morning and there was evening, the nth day. And then on the seventh day, it has not finished. In other words, um, God's uh, resting from his creation continues now, according to the Bible. So, so far that seventh day has been pretty long. Perhaps the other days are long eras. That's what uh, Genesis one is describing. And it is very tempting in some ways, for instance, uh, that the big features like light and dark and so on do get formed before uh, the details like animals and birds and, uh, uh, and fish and so on. But there are problems with that understanding of Genesis 1. Crucially, for instance, sun and moon and stars only get created on the fourth day in verse 14 of chapter 1 whereas light was created on the first day how does that work? Um, uh, vegetation was already existing on the land on the third day before sun and moon and stars it doesn't seem to quite work Now, what I want to uh, suggest to you is that the, the, the six days of creation are a sort of prophetic or a poetic device. They, they, they are a, um, a mould within which the information is poured to help us to understand it, to help us to have a picture of what we cannot see. I want to try and show you, for a good chunk of our time this morning, the um, poetic structure of Genesis chapter one. To try to persuade you, at least, this is this is one of the most glorious poems that was ever written. We need to um, see after the introduction in verses one to three, which I put there as a as a. Uh, heading, and the, uh, conc- uh, between that, that and the conclusion, the seventh day in chapters two, chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 3, we need to see that there are t- six days organized as two sets of three, and each of the, uh, the pairs across that table serve as um, mates. So on day one, God creates light and on day four, he creates lights, the star, sun and the moon and the stars. On day two, God creates a vault or in the NIV an expanse between the waters and he calls it sky. And on day, uh, day five, he populates both the sky and, and, uh, and the sea. And then on day three, day three is a double day. God says, let, God produces the dry ground, and then God produces um, vegetation on the dry ground. Day six then serves as another day. The ground, notice, um, produces living creatures, and then God is produced in the second half of. Uh, 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 sorry, man, God, man is produced in the second half of day six. And man and animals are given, those plants that were created in the second half of day three. There is, I hope you can see, a basic structure to Genesis chapter 1 that is set out, that that describes this uh, creation with a beautiful symmetry. And on top of that structure there are numerous other patterns that make the poem into a complex woven narrative. There is a basic pattern for every day, for instance. Every day God says something, God then does exactly what he says, God then assesses it as good, and at the end and then there's the end of the day, morning and evening and the end of the day. Each day, though, on top of that pattern has a very slight variation to build richness into the pattern. For instance, last week I began um, uh, to show you that pattern by um, showing you how and God said gets used in the the creation account. Ten times it is... uh, Uh, it it is repeated, but according to a particular pattern. Um, Once on days one and two, and then twice on that double day, day three, then once on days four and five, and then, lo and behold, four times on the next double day. Day six. Making up a total of ten times. The numbers ten and seven uh, are very, very prominent. We're going to see more of that uh, in a minute. Of course, we've already had seven days, the seven days of the week, and they both tend to symbolise um, completeness in Scripture. Then look at the word made in uh, this passage. Slightly different pattern, but on the six days... Um, uh, where God is making things, we find, lo and behold, seven times the word made appears. Once on day two, fascinatingly, twice on day three, the double day, but this with a particular nuance to it, in that he makes plants that can make things, can make fruit. Um, So God... Uh, Here uh, is giving the potentiality to his creation, or at least to his biological creation, to make someone like he makes. If uh, anyone wanted to uh, search for, for hints of evolution in... Um, uh, in Genesis 1, perhaps they should go there, but let's not, uh, let's not speculate too much. And then uh, 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 we find God making, making, making again seven times. And then, fascinatingly, on the seventh day, the word gets repeated three times to make the number up to ten. Now, here's a rich poem. Here's a carefully constructed poem. Here's, there's something else going on than uh, a simply a uh, naive narrative. Let's look at another thing. God assesses, I said. He sees that things are good. How many times does he do it? Well, you won't be surprised. It's seven. God's, but not, notice, one per day. Let's work it out different, different than that. The pattern is, is uh, uh, rejigged ever so slightly for each one, but still with a common theme. The light was good. Um, The double day, God saw that it was good twice. God saw that the lights were good and then three times on on the second double day God saw that it was good. But the last time God looked at everything that he had made and he saw it was very good. He names things three times on the first three days and then doesn't do it after that. But what he starts doing in the second half, not perfectly matched, but uh, notice uh, uh, where it goes, three times he starts blessing things. Actually, there's a, there's, there's a definite word play in the middle of, uh, uh, of all that as well, because the word for bless is barach. And the word for create is barach. And uh, though I haven't put it on there... The blessing is strongly associated with the uh, use of the word barak. So he creates barak things to bless them, barak. There are innumerable Hebrew word plays as well in it, Um, but... um, uh, let, let let me not uh, go go down that line too much. There's more as well. Fourteen times, twice seven, fourteen times it says, and it was so. That is, uh, it, it seems to me, the dominant thing that is wanted to the that that, that, that uh, this. Piece of literature shouts us—a us. carefully, magnificently structured piece of of poetry. It, it, it sings at you as you, you you as you as you read it and as you study it. Why structured around seven days? Well. Let me suggest why, perhaps. Let me suggest that it it acts as a symbolic device to connect God's work of creating with our duty to work in God's world as the image of God. We'll see more of that next week, but let, let, let me just uh, alert you to that. If Genesis was written by Moses, as many, as many think, Moses was the one who, through whom God introduced the idea of working for six days and resting on the seventh, explicitly to mirror God who had worked and now rested. And what better way of establishing that connection then not by revealing that God had worked in 6 24 hour periods that's how we have to mirror God because we're not God but just simply establishing God too once worked and now rests like you human beings work for 6 days and then rest we are his image We are not God. So the way we do it is not the same as the way God does it. But we are his image. That's some of the reasons then. Rushed through at high speed. Perhaps I'll try and put this um, overhead on the web so you can you can look at it as well. That's some of the reasons why. 25 years ago I could sit at Stephen Hawking's feet and not be unduly disturbed about his ideas. I simply don't think that Genesis 1 intends to be a historical description of creation. I do think that Genesis 1 has profound things to say to us today. Indeed, it was after I read the draft of his book that he put in that incredibly pretentious statement at the end that to know how the universe functions is to know the mind of God. We spent hours arguing ourselves before that, that it did nothing of the sort. It says some interesting things about matter, but it doesn't say the most profound things. No, this single chapter of the Bible, written thousands of years before Stephen Hawking was even a twinkle in his parents' eye, says far more about the universe than his discoveries ever will do. Fundamental uh, to the universe, I said last week, is not st- the stuff that Stephen Hawking is talking about, it is mind, the mind of God, who decided that the universe would look like it was and then actually invented gravity and matter and quantum physics, physics to, to make, it, make it happen, saying, let there be, and it was so. And then God invented Stephen Hawking to find out something about it. But let me add some more implications of of, uh, uh, Genesis 1 for, for you to think about. Let me point out, for instance, what we started to talk about last week, but let me say it a little bit more. Stuff. That is the physical stuff of this world is good, says Genesis one. Remember that sevenfold assessment? God saw that it was good six times, and then God saw that it was very good. Many other religions you see, and forms of spirituality today suggest that the highest good that we can achieve. He's somehow found away from the physical world in in some sort of spiritual realm. Oh, and Christians would say the spiritual dimension to life is absolutely vital. But the Bible, from beginning to end, insists that we find and enjoy good things in the solidness of the physical world. World. It is good to have a body. It is not a temporary encumbrance for our soul. It is part of the goodness of being human. It is good to enjoy food. It is good to enjoy the first shoots of spring, to have been delighted by the snowdrops, to be looking forward to the, the daffodils and the bluebells that will come afterwards. It is good. It is good to do exercise. It is good to go to work on Monday and do physical work. It is good to make things. It is good to grow things. It is good to play sport. Physical life is good. Now this 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 biblical idea of the dignity and glory of the physical dimension of our Uh, uh, Of who we are, has profoundly shaped the world for the better. You know, whilst pagan philosophers in ancient Rome were shutting themselves away and debating ever more abstruse irrelevancies, the Christians who saw that serving God practically in the real physical world were out there serving their world and transforming it. That's why they came to dominate the Roman Empire. Because the pagans, who uh, thought that only spiritual stuff was of any value, did not serve it and were rejected. Or uh, in, the, in the in the in the in the Middle Ages, when the church had rather lost touch with the with, 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 um, uh, with this Theme in Scripture. It was when the Reformation led to the rediscovery of the Bible, Christians rediscovered what the Bible says about the goodness of serving God in daily solid. Ordinary labour. Art, for instance, was transformed. If you look at pre-Reformation art, by and large, overwhelmingly, artists felt that to do a good picture it had to be of some sort of spiritual theme, preferably with people with halos round round their heads. And then the Dutch artists... Reformed artists who read their Bibles and understood the goodness of solid, ordinary life started, draw- started painting beautiful pictures of an old lady eating a bit of bread, or someone ploughing a field, or all those other, just solid, ordinary, God-glorifying things, and art was transformed. Martin Luther famously said that uh, someone changing a nappy glorified God more than a thousand preachers very often if they did it for the glory of God. Your solid physical life is good because the solid physical world you live in is good, it's very good. And all that stuff is God's stuff. There is not a corner of this universe that was not made by God for a particular purpose. Our calling is to understand the purpose that God made his creation for and then to use it and care for it for that, uh, 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 in a way which is consonant with that purpose, your life is not about some spiritual dimension, and then the rest of it's been, the rest of your li- your life has been given to you to get on as best you uh, as best you can and to use it. No, your life in its entirety is to be used by God in the way that God uh, calls you to use it for His glory. Everything about you. What you eat, who you marry, your sexual life, your work, scientists, what they discover, scientists, what 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 they will and won't do, laborers, all stuff is God's stuff. If you choose to ignore. God's, the maker's instructions, you will violate yourself, you will violate God's creation, and you will violate your relationship with God. You were made for everything about you. To be lived in a particular way. The one who knows how is the Creator. And then one final thing. Right now, says Genesis 1 and the beginning of 2, in fact, God is resting from his work of creation. By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work He blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. And I've already said that rest continues. But Genesis 1 and 2 hints that rest is only for a while. There's one more pattern I want you to see. It's Genesis 1 and 2's use of that most fundamental word Create. And there's only six of them. Where's the seventh? Should be seven. Well, as the uh, Bible unfolds, the prophets, particularly the prophet Isaiah, start to say with greater and greater clarity. God is going to do another great work of creation. Just one example is Isaiah 65 verse 17. God is going to recreate his world. That's the same word, create there. When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, It is finished. Wasn't it finished in chapter 2 verse 2? When he rose from the dead, he rose on the eighth day, the beginning of a new week. God began his new creation in Jesus on that day. Jesus who died on the cross for our sins so that this world could be sorted out. Jesus who rose from the dead on the eighth day as the firstborn from among the dead, the beginning of a new creation. Jesus' resurrection will one day be completed when God creates a new heaven and a new earth and raises us too. What I want to say to you, if if everything else has bemused you, listen now, listen to this now. You cannot be the person you're supposed to be unless you commit yourself to obeying God and following Jesus, you just can't. You'll be doing violence to who you are. But more than that, you absolutely cannot be part of God's new creation. That future hope that began when Jesus rose from the dead, you cannot be part of that unless you'll follow Jesus. He gave us a solid, concrete way of symbolising that. Because he likes physical things. So he gave us baptism. We're going to have a baptismal service on Easter Sunday. A number of people are considering it. I just want to say, why not you?